Uh, this morning we're picking up in First Peter, which we are in this series called Set Apart. It's a study of First Peter. And uh, we'll be picking up in chapter 1, verse 13 through 25. But before we do, I'm going to share just a little bit with you. One, one of my favorite shows is this, uh, it's a show on CNN. It's called uh, Parts Unknown. And it's, uh, it's Anthony Bourdain. I don't know if you know who Anthony Bourdain is. But the, the, the show is just, he travels all over the world. You know, he kind of like gets into these different cultures all over the world. He experiences the music. He talks to people. He eats the food, you know. And I love the show. It's like, a, it's really beautiful. Like the, you know, from the video to the music that they, and, and it's just it's awesome. Like I feel like I watch the show and I actually get a little bit engaged in the culture that they're visiting, Right. And so as I've watched it, I've also become kind of a fan of Anthony Bourdain. Like, he's this, you know, super uh, cool, like, bad boy kind of guy. But he's also, (laughs) yeah, I like people like that. Right? But also, he's, like, really into art, and he loves uh, writing, and he loves people, and uh, and that comes through in in that. And he, most of all, loves food, which I kind of like food, so that's good. Anyways, I kind of become a fan of, of Anthony Bourdain. So earlier this year, we had a, a marriage thing in, in uh, New Orleans, Claire and I went to. And on the way, I picked up the book, Kitchen Confidential. It's Anthony Bourdain's book. I took that with me uh, to read on the plane and while we're in a hotel. So I'm reading this book by Anthony Bourdain, Kitchen Confidential. And in this book, he's talking about when he first fell in love with food, right? Because he's a chef that turned writer, that turned TV show host. Uh, and just, you know, famous for a bunch of stuff. But anyways, so he's telling the story of when he first fell in love with food, right? And he's talking about being up, up north somewhere with his parents, and they go out in a boat with uh, an oyster boat, oyster catcher. I don't know what you call them. Anyways, so he's, they're out there, and uh, he's a kid. He's with his mom and dad and his brother, and then he kind of is getting hungry. So he starts complaining about being hungry, and uh, the, the captain of the boat, which obviously isn't very big because all he did is reach down into the water and he grabbed an oyster off the bottom. He pulled it up and he opened it and gave it to Anthony Bourdain to eat. And he was like, yes, I am eating this thing you just pulled up from the, the ocean. And he ate it and he kind of describes it. And uh, that's when he fell in love with food, right? And I was like, man, that's awesome. Then we're walking around, along the streets of New Orleans And everywhere I'm going in the French Quarter and whatnot, they're like pulling oysters out of these big vats of ice and just shucking them right in front of everybody. And I've never had oysters before, right? And the music's going, and I'm just loving the culture of New Orleans. I kind of felt like I was Anthony Bourdain because I was in a different culture, and I was experiencing it, and there was oysters and and all this. And I was like, I'm eating oysters. I'm going to be a part of this thing. So we went to a restaurant. I got a big plate of raw oysters and we also got some char-broiled or char-grilled, char-grilled maybe, oysters. And, uh, and I ate them. And it's a little weird. It's a little weird. It's, uh, you know, I don't, I, th- I think it's still alive. That's weird. Uh, it's a little slimy. Kind of tastes like nothing. Uh, and so, you know, anyways. But, but, you know, it wasn't good. It wasn't bad. It wasn't anything. It was fine, but the experience was awesome. I was pretty jacked up. You know, I was like, I'm eating oysters in New Orleans. I'm Anthony Bourdain. And Claire's like, no, you're not, you know. 
Like I said, it was fine. It wasn't bad, but the experience was pretty awesome. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I bring that scripture up because I've always felt like it's an invitation, right? It's an invitation to actually do something. It's an invitation to an actual action. Our tasting, our taking a bite of is an action. It's an invitation into an action where we do something to experience the goodness of God. It's an invitation to do something with the promise of good news, right? And it kind of reminds me of, of, of me in New Orleans. Like, I've, I've heard good things about God. This may be you. Like, you've heard good things about God. You've heard good things about Jesus. I've read the book. I've read the Bible. I've read pieces of the Bible. I've heard the stories. I've kind of snooped around the God culture a little bit. Maybe you've just been around the God, Jesus culture, church culture a little bit, and so you kind of have heard some stuff, but until you sink your teeth in and know him, right, until you actually taste him, we need to actually taste him if we're truly going to experience the goodness of God, right? God is good. That's, That's not in question. We need to taste him if we're going to experience him in all his goodness. So in this week's passage from 1 Peter, what I, what I kind of hope we'll begin to see is that while, like Reggie said a couple weeks ago, being precedes doing, being precedes doing, and that's true, there's good news for us in the doing too, right? There's good news for us in the doing. It's where we increasingly taste and experience the fruit of the good news. I want us to walk away from this first chapter of Peter kind of just believing that if our heavenly father tells us to do something, we can trust that there's good news in the doing for us. If he tells us to do something, we can trust that there's good news in the doing for us. So let's just jump in. We're going to read this passage. It's 1 Peter 1, 13 uh, through 25. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him, As Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news 
that was preached to you. Now, there are four imperatives in this passage that I want us to look at. There's four to-dos that I want us to look at. But what I want us to see is that they're all rooted in the truth that our being precedes our doing. And as we talked about last week, as we were kind of unpacking the first uh, half of of this uh, particular chapter, our being, our being comes before doing, and our being comes from our identity as being born again children of God. That's who we are. Our being comes from our identity as born again children of God who have been risen with Christ into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. That is who we are, born again children of God. And as a follower of Christ, you've been set apart from this world, which we keep talking about as we go through this series. You've been set apart from this world, and you've been set apart for God. You may be a stranger in this world. This is what we covered last week. You may be a stranger in this world. You may be an outsider here. You may not quite fit. You may be an exile and a sojourner. But you are known and loved by God, who is your father. That is why this particular verse in chapter, in verse 13 in chapter 1, that's why the therefore is there, right? You're supposed to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? The therefore is to remind us of who we are, to remind us of our being that precedes the doing. And Peter masterfully links, like, our being and our doing, like, throughout this letter. He intertwines them constantly as he commissions these elect exiles to live on mission where they are, while continually reminding them of their identity in and through Christ as a born-again child of God. So here in verse 13, he begins talking implications. What kind of doing ought to come from our being? And the second part of the passage comes out of that first. So there's four things that are kind of in this passage that I want us to see that we are to do. According to these verses, as born-again children of God, our inheritance calls us to do these four things. Uh, and they kind of all build on each other. And they are hope, set our hope on him fully. Number two, be holy. Number three, conduct ourselves with fear. And four, love one another earnestly. I just want to take just a few minutes this morning and just kind of go through these four things, these four things that we are to do that we're like, it's an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Let's take a look at those. We're going to start with hope. This passage begins with the call to prepare our minds for action. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. But those words can also be translated to, like, gird up the loins of your minds. Gird up the loins of your minds. And and then it says, and be sober-minded as we set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, to gird up their loins is a reference to how men wearing long robes, right, would lift up the, the long parts of the robe, tuck them into their belt, would tuck, them, uh, would tuck them in so they could move more freely and more quickly, right? And kind of in light of, even in this chapter, Peter has already talked about the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, and even in verse 19, as we'll get to in a minute, he talks about being ransomed by the blood of Christ, who's like the perfect spotless lamb. It's suggested that he's drawing the reader back to Exodus uh, 12, 11, and the Passover. And the picture there is so helpful, whether Peter intended it or not. We're just going to jump over there real quick. Exodus 12, 11, it just says this. It says, in this manner, this is while God's giving instruction for the Passover. 
And then he says, in this manner you shall eat with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Right? As God is really unpacking some good news for them as he tells them what's going to happen with this Passover. I'm going to spare your children. I'm going to deliver you from captivity. And I'm going to deliver you not only from captivity, but I'm going to give you the land that I promise your fathers. And it is going to happen. Right? As he unpacks that, he also instructs his people to be ready, to gird up their loins, to eat with your staff in your hand, to live with an expectancy and a hope so that you don't miss out on what God's doing because God's going to do it. So the message is clear that even Peter is getting at. Be ready to go at a moment's notice. God's going to deliver his people. God's going to provide for his people what he said he would provide and you will enter the land that God promised. So Peter's saying to these elect exiles, these sojourners, to be ready. Not by physically dressing the part, but by girding up the loins of their mind to like stay sober, having your mind set fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, to be looking forward fully to that, right? And to be ready. And this is what I really want us to see kind of unfolded right here, is if you are his child now, If you are a child of God, you're born again, if you're a child of God's now, if he has brought you this far, if he made a way for you to be his, he can be trusted to do what he said he's going to do. You've been born again, then you're his. Therefore, set your hopes fully on him. Don't be distracted by the places where we are and the distractions of this world. Don't put your hope in things that this world has to offer. Set your hope fully on him because he's going to do what he said he was going to do. He's already made you his. He's already brought you from death into life. This land, this exile, this sojourning, this being in this world makes us feel like a stranger, but it won't last forever. God will deliver us. God will provide, and we will enter the land that he's promised. Don't be distracted by what's going on here in this place. Set your gaze beyond this space. This is the call of Peter. Set your gaze beyond the space on, to, on the who we are with, right? Set your gaze on who we are with, not where we are. Set your gaze on your father. You're his child. Don't check out of where we are either. That's not the point. We're here for a reason. We don't check out. But don't place our hopes in this world. If our Heavenly Father tells us to do something, like set our hope fully on Him, we can trust that there's good news in the doing for us. Right? He's already delivered on His promises. So you and I, we can set our hope fully on Him. He's trustworthy. We're going to move on to being holy, the second thing, the second to do, the second kind of imperative. In many ways, I I actually think that Peter's letter is an exhortation to be holy and then like some instruction on what that looks like and to be a holy people and some instruction on what that looks like. And so I named this particular thing in the bulletin. You'll see it's just, you shall be holy. I think it's, it's a big piece of what this book is about. Well, let's pay close attention to the language that Peter uses here in verse 14 and 15. He says, as obedient children telling you he's just going to keep reminding us of our identity. Like, it's so awesome. 
Every time. He's just going to keep doing it through the whole book, just reminding you of who you are. As obedient children, you are a child of God. As obedient children, Peter's preceding the doing with our being, that we are his, we're a child of God, right? Then he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. If you used to be consumed by the passions of the world because you were ignorant of the satisfaction that comes from holy passions, right? So you go with whatever the world offers, whatever the world promises to deliver for you because you're ignorant to how they just lead to death and how they keep you in captivity. But now you're not ignorant. And Peter reminds those who he's writing to over and again that they are not who they used to be, right? You're not who you used to be. You were of perishable seed, You were of the world. You were just going after the things that this world has to offer. But all those things only lead to death. They're all perishable. But now you're imperishable. Once you were not a people, he'll say this in chapter 2, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. He keeps doing it. And he says, but as as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. I've noticed, like with my kids, uh, they like to do things that Claire and I do, right? They like to imitate us. Uh, So one of the the things right now is that uh, all the kids will be in the room playing, and then they'll come in, and they'll have their backpacks on and stuff, and they'll just be like, hey, Daddy, we're going to work, you know? (laughs) Like, they don't have a job, so... Uh, so they come in, hey, Daddy, we're going to work, and they come around, and they give everybody a hug and a kiss, because that's what I do when I go to work, and then they're just like, bye, we love you, and then they take off down the hallway, they duck into a room or whatever, and then they come back out, hey, we're home from work, and they come and give us hugs and kisses in their back. They're just imitating something that they see me do, right? They imitate us at prayer time, like when they actually cooperate with prayer time, right? They just pray whatever we've prayed with them, and they ask the questions that we ask, like, hey, mommy and daddy, what are you thankful for? You know, they imitate us in that way. And then the other day, I heard one of them getting frustrated with Claire. I think she was trying to brush her teeth or something. And she's like, but mommy, but mommy, uh, you know, I don't want to stand on the thing or whatever. And, and mommy's trying to do something else. And then she just goes, ugh. <laughs> right? And I was like, what? <laughs> it wasn't until later on that day that I realized she got that from me. Because I got frustrated and I was like, ugh. Right? They imitate us. Some things I want them to imitate, some things I don't want them to imitate us and imitate. And that's the deal, man. Like our Heavenly Father wants us to imitate Him. He's perfect, He's pure, He's holy, and He wants us to be like Him. He wants us to imitate Him. And children want to imitate their parents, they want to be like the good parts of their parents. This verse, I think, can be such a stumbling block for people because, like, our paradigm is just so focused on our own wants and our own desires and our own passions and the things of this world and whatever lives we've bought into. But what I really want us to see is that, that that phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy, isn't a call to obey the law in order to be approved by God. It's not a doing before being, right? It's not a call to be holy so that you'll be approved by God. That's not the point. Rather, this call to be holy is a gift. It's a gift to be called to obey the law because you've been made a child of God. And he wants you to look like him. He wants you to look like the way he made you to look like. 
This particular phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy, it comes from Leviticus 11.44. But even there, as God is laying out the law and telling his people to obey it, it wasn't in order so that they would find approval with God. They were already God's people. Just listen to those words. You shall be. You shall be. It's a word that calls us to action for sure. But I think even more so, it's a word that's a promise. You shall be holy. Like when God says something's going to happen, it happens. Right? It's a call to action, but it's also a promise. God wants you to be like him. He wants you to bear his image. He wants you to be holy because he's holy. And you were created to enjoy and be satisfied in holiness. So that's the only way that you're actually going to be satisfied is by acting like you were created to act and being who you were created to be. And he's making you holy. He's making you holy. You shall be holy. And as a matter of fact, you're already, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you have already, you're already standing before him as holy. You already have a right standing before him, and he looks on you as holy. If you didn't, then God couldn't be with you. But through Christ, you're holy. He looks at Jesus and sees you. And so his holiness is your holiness. And God, who's holy, can't be with that which isn't unholy. So we know that he already has called us holy. We shall be holy. See, the call to holiness, the call to purity, is God's call for us to be imitators of him as as a child imitates a parent so that we will grow up to experience the joy and the satisfaction that is reserved for us in that identity. You get it? It's not a call to be good so that God will have you. It's a call to joy and satisfaction because that's how you were created to be. So when God lays out the law, he's trying to help them get the death part out of their life, the stuff that leads to death, get that out and start leading back to life. If our Father, if our Heavenly Father tells us to do something, we can trust that there's good news in the doing for us, right? You've been made holy. So the call is experience the good news more fully as you grow up into holiness. We're going to move on. Let's talk a little bit about fear. Peter takes this father child relationship further in verses 17 through 21. And he kind of expands on the gift that we have been given in being made holy. Right? It's kind of building on that a little bit. And he says, if you call on him as father, if you call on him as father, listen to the language, it's father-child again. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And I think here again is another place we can get stuck. We might get tempted to kind of just get stuck here, reading it more like this. This is... I know I've read it this way. 
and I'm betting some of you have read it this way, you better be so afraid of God's judgment that you do right. You better be afraid. And so you better act right. That's not the way to read this. That's not what he's saying. Remember, being precedes the doing. And you've already been born again to be a child of God. You've already, if you're a follower of Christ, you've already been born again to be a child of God. And that's who this letter is directed to, children of God. And he is already with you, meaning you've already been made holy through Jesus Christ. You have that standing before God. Peter says you call on him as father. That's something you already can do. You were ransomed from the feudal ways of your forefathers. He's already taking you out of the perishable ways of your forefathers and giving you the imperishable inheritance of God. No longer is your inheritance that which perishable. Your inheritance is undefiled, imperishable, and unfading. And through the blood and the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, you've been made holy, and he who judges impartially finds you not guilty. calling him his father. You were ransomed from the fathers you had on this earth who had only perishable things to give you and you've been given to a father who's only got in, in uh, imperishable things to give you. So Peter's called to us here as he kind of casts some lights, light on our deeds. The idea is to incite an objective look at our unworthiness to be rescued. We were certainly unworthy. He who judges impartially looks at our deeds to decide how to judge, and he judges impartially. And as we look at that, we know that we are unworthy on our own. But then the call is, he's, we call him father. We are made his child. He's a judge that's impartial, but he's looked on Christ and his sacrifice in our place. And so, Peter tells us this and reminds us of our deeds and reminds us of how we're not worthy so that we can be stunned. We can just be stunned by the Christ, that Christ has done this for us, that Christ has made us worthy before God. And therefore, we can remember the true glory of God, who he is and what he does. Peter tells us to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So the question is, what kind of fear are we being called to? And what I want us to see is he's calling us to be in awe and to be stunned by who God is and that we are even able to call him Father. We're called to walk in awe of God. That's the kind of fear we're talking about. Walk in awe, in awe that he calls us sons and daughters at all. Because it's from a place of awe that we will conduct ourselves as he created us to live, right? We might be tempted to conduct ourselves like those we dwell amongst because we're exiles, we're sojourners, we're strangers here. And so the ways of the world are going to tempt us. It's going to seem like we get, this is the way, this is what everybody around me is doing. I might be tempted to do it like those that we dwell amongst, but this is a call to remember that there is nothing there for us. There's nothing in the world for us. It's, it's all well-disguised like death traps that keep us in captivity. But through Christ, we've been set apart from this world. We've been set free from the captivity that had nothing for us but death. And we've been set apart for God through Christ. 
the source of true life. And if our Heavenly Father tells us to do something, we can trust that there is good news in the doing it, right? God's truly awesome, like worthy of awe. God is truly awesome. Conduct yourselves with fear and awe that such an awesome God would ransom you. That such an awesome God would set you free. That such an awesome God would make you his son, make you his daughter by the blood of his own son. And the last of the four calls in this passage is to love one another earnestly. And let's just read these last few verses. Uh, verse 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass wither, it withers and the flower falls, but the, Lord, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It says, since you've been born again. I just want us to pay attention to that. It's all the way through it. Since you've been born again. It's so key in this command to love one another. It matters so much that Peter really kind of opens it up and expands it so that we understand who we've been born to, whose child we are, what kind of inheritance we've been given. Right? He says, since you have been born again, and then he kind of goes into our inheritance and what it means. The inheritance that has been given to us is not for our benefit alone, it's for others. That's what I want us to see, right? The inheritance that's been given to us, this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance is not for us alone. It benefits us. It's not for us alone. It's for others as well. Just as Jesus, we have to look to Christ. Just as Jesus, who was pure, loved us earnestly even to the cross to become our brother, to become our savior and our rescuer, so we're called to love one another with brotherly love. We who are followers of Jesus are brothers and sisters. We've been made children of God. We've been made a family. We are brothers and sisters. And I, th I think we need to hear that. Like, it's not just, hey, you're a child of God. That's good. Like, man, there's so much good news in that I'm a child of God. But also, you've been made a brother or sister. Once we realize that God is for us, that he has already made us his sons and daughters, we ought to begin to see others differently. Right? We ought to be able to see others differently. We ought to be, able to, uh, to be able to begin to see them through the eyes of our Father. It's worth like intentional pause, maybe today at some point, to set your gaze on a friend or on somebody in this church or on the people in this church and try to see them through the eyes of the Father. If he so loved you, doesn't he so love them? If God so loves you to make you his child and he's made them your brothers and sisters, doesn't he so love them? Doesn't he find them valuable beyond our understanding? Doesn't he see them as fit and doesn't he see them as worthy through Christ? Doesn't he find them lovable? And I think if we're just honest, you know, sometimes it's hard enough for us to remember that we're gods and that we're loved by God through Christ, Right? And so we can just kind of not think a whole lot of how much he loves 
others and how that should change your heart. So I want us to see that there's something in us for, there's something for us in brotherly love. I really can't even express it accurately. I was kind of having trouble with this, but when we, when we see the way God sees, we love who God loves, right? When we see the way that God sees, we will love who God loves. We're led to worship him more fully and feel the, the heights and the depths and the widths of his great love for us. When we begin to look at others and see the way that God loves them, then all, we're led to a place of worship, like where we can be able to begin to just see how big his great love really is. There's something to be given to others. In our loving earnestly, we take the good news of Jesus Christ, right? And we remind one another that we are loved by God, that we are sons and daughters. And so if our Heavenly Father tells us to do something, to love one another earnestly, we can trust that there's good news in the doing for us. God loves each and every one of you. I want you to hear that. God loves each and every one of you. Love one another and experience the good news of being part of the family of God. That's the call of Peter. God loves you. He's made you his children. Experience the good news of being part of the family of God by loving one another earnestly. Now this passage ends saying, it just says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news is that your salvation remains forever. Your salvation remains forever. Your sonship, your daughtership of God remains forever. It's imperishable. You've been born again to be his because Jesus made a way, and that's never going to end. It's good news. As a people at Redemption Church, we often talk about discipleship and growing up in Christ, and we define discipleship as increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. And we use that word increasingly because we understand that we've already been saved, that we've already been made a child of God, that we've already been made holy, and that we have, and we, and that in the future we will be saved and we will be delivered from this place and we will be holy. But also right now we have more of the gospel to experience in this life. We have more holiness to experience. We need to know, because of that, we need to know the areas of life that we haven't experienced the impact of the cross. We have to be able to see those. We have to see how there's places in our life that are hiding where the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't impacting. But the more the good news impacts more areas of life, there will be more freedom experienced and more satisfaction and more joy. So we need to know that the we need to know the gospel in all areas of life. We've been talking about it. We've been saying that we want to be a more gospel-fluent people for that reason because we want to be able to speak the gospel and talk about how the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ speaks into the everyday stuff of our life. And in the first part of this passage, we talked a lot about who is God or who God is, uh, what he does through Jesus Christ, and who that makes us. In the first half of this passage last week, we talked a whole lot about those three questions. And those are the first three questions we should ask when we're seeking to understand how the gospel impacts the everyday stuff of life. Who is God? Who is Christ? Or what does he do through Christ? And who does that make us? And we talked a lot about that last week. God is our Father, and Jesus made a way for that. He paid our ransom and has revealed to us that God is our very good Father. And who does that make us? Sons and daughters of God, known and loved in the family of God. And this week, I want us to ask the last question in these gospel fluency questions. It's the last question we ought to ask as we seek to understand how the gospels apply to all of life. And we just ask, so what do we do? 
often I think that's the, the question we come to first. This is reverse order. Okay? Let's ask who God is first, what he does, who that makes us. What do we do? In light of who God is, what he does, and who that makes us, what do we do? Set your hope fully on Christ. That's number one. Set your hope fully on Christ. If you're honest this morning, if you're honest, what is your hope set on? Could be set on a job. Could be set on money, awards, platforms, a relationship, sex, political party, our government, America, the Weather Channel. But come on, man. Like we know the truth that there's nothing there for us, right? There's nothing there for you. Nothing and no one will deliver on their promises to make you belong. Nobody's going to deliver on the promise to make you feel truly safe and secure or comfortable. And nobody's going to deliver on the promise to fully satisfy you. Nobody, nothing of this world can deliver on any of those promises. So so set your hope fully on Christ, who has delivered already on the promises of God and is sure to deliver on the promises that he's made for our future. Number one. Number two and three. Knowing that it is true, uh, let's see, just knowing that who God is and what he does and, and, and who that makes us, and knowing that we are truly his children, conduct yourselves as ransomed children of God. Conduct yourselves as ransomed children of God with fear and awe, and be holy. Be holy and walk in awe and fear of who God is. What's impure in you? What are you taking in? What are you doing that keeps you taking on the impurity? What do you keep feeding on that only leads to death? Set your gaze on God who's holy and good and don't go ignorantly chasing impure passions. You know there's nothing there for you. There's more life and freedom and holy living. It's not a way to get approved by God. It's a way for you to be satisfied and find joy in the life, of real life. Find your joy and satisfaction in God and his ways. And lastly, what do we do? Love one another earnestly. Be a part of the family. Pray for one another. Look at each other through the eyes of God. Encourage each other with the gospel. Speak the gospel to each other. And in all things, all these things that we do, it's an invitation to taste and see the Lord is good. All right? Being precedes doing, but there's good news in the doing for us. So the invitation is to taste and see that the Lord is good. As you set your hope fully on him. Set your hope on him. Set your... Uh, Conduct yourselves in a holy way, walking in fear and awe of who he is, and love one another earnestly. We're just going to move into a time of response, which we do every week. And uh, during this time, the band will come, and they'll lead us in worship through song. And there will be people who can pray with you if you'd like to, be, if you'd like to pray. Uh, there will be people in the back you can pray with. You can sit and pray where you are. You can stand and sing and worship God together. Uh, there's an offering basket in the back where you can give of your tithes and offerings as a act of worship and trusting God. And, uh, and then we also take communion every week. And so as we do that, we'll come down the middle. You'll come and you'll take uh, the bread and you'll dip it in the wine or the juice. 
And uh, as you do that, we're proclaiming to one another the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is, he's done what he said he would do, and he's going to do so much more. He's going to deliver us from here, but in this place he has something for us. So remembering who our Savior is, remembering Jesus Christ, remember that he made us a child of God and that God is our Father, that he loves us. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to come and take communion with us and proclaim that to one another. Proclaim, we need to hear that from one another. And so in your action, you're reminding each other that Jesus Christ is really who he says he is. All right, if you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you not come take. It's not because we don't like you or because we want you to feel like the outsider. It's because we're saying that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that he's the one and only way to God. All right, that's what we're proclaiming. And so if you can't proclaim that, we just don't want you to, to say it. So uh, instead, we'd like you to hear what we're saying and accept the invitation to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. If you want to pray with somebody, we'll be available for that as well. Uh, Why don't we pray together? Our Father, I thank you uh, again for this day and this time together. You've brought us together. Like you've worked all things together so that we would be here today. You've brought us together to to hear the gospel and to set our eyes on Christ and to know who you are and what you do and who that makes us and and how we ought to live life for your glory and our joy and satisfaction. We praise you. We just lift you up and just thank you that you are who you are, that we aren't lost, that we aren't outsiders, that we aren't strangers, but we are known by a holy God, the holy God. Father, this morning, I just ask that you do work in our hearts. Like, show us the places where we're not hoping in you, or we're placing our hopes somewhere else. Show us the places where we're not holy. And like, lead us into holiness for our good and for your glory. Show us how great you are so that we would walk in fear and awe. And let us experience love for one another that is earnest, that is deep, and that expresses who you are to one another. And may we taste and see that you are good. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.